الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد. So we're uh, moving on to the next section. So this is on finance, financial wellness. Um, finance, premise. Finances are often an enormous source of stress and unhappiness. So this is uh, the, 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 the premise for this, right? And that is that we probably all experienced it where we felt financially stressed, right? It's like, it's, it's very common. It's very common. We, can, we don't have to look far. I mean, maybe the simplification doesn't relate, but everyone at some point in their life has felt stressed financially. In fact, it's so common. Every year, the APA, the American Psychological Association, they do this survey called the Stress in America survey to gauge what are the leading causes, what are the leading things that are stressing Americans, right, on a day-to-day -day basis. And almost consistently, year after year, the number one uh, cause of stress in a person's life in that survey is finances. Like 60% of Americans say that finance has stressed them in the past year. And the, it's the number one cause in this country. Uh, finance, finance, financial stress is the number one cause of divorce filings in this country. So you can see how, uh, how common it is and how, how deep that stress penetrates. Islam alleviates this burden by establishing several important principles pertaining to finances. By internalizing these principles, we can be more content with our possessions while also leveraging our wealth to attain success in this life and the next. Look, Islam as a solution for everything has a solution for our finances as well. You know, the, the, the reason that finances stress us so much is because we don't understand finances. Money is tricky by its nature. It's just, it's just the way money is. It's hard to understand money because it is money. It's not something that's tangible. You know, maybe a thousand years ago, wealth was in the form of something tangible, like the sheep that you owned, or it was in the form of the, the crop that you grew. But, uh, and, and maybe even gold and silver, right? But now it's become numbers, it's become pieces of paper, it's become nothing, really. So it's difficult to understand, and, and it's causing a tremendous amount of stress. But alhamdulillah for us, we have the Quran and Sunnah that, uh, to help us understand exactly what money is. So let's start by just understanding uh, where wealth, uh, understanding what wealth is. Wealth comes from Allah. And they spend from out of what we have provided for them. So the first thing to understand about wealth is that we don't create it or destroy it. This is not from us. We simply enter into this world. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allocates a portion of wealth and he gives it to us. And it's our responsibility to distribute it. When we leave, we take nothing back with us. This is Allah's money. He gives it. He provides it. And he, choose, and he wants us to spend it. That's number one. That we don't create or destroy wealth. And they spend... Verily, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides for whom he wills without account. So number one is that we don't create or destroy wealth. Number two is that Allah Ta'ala is the one who decides where wealth is distributed. We don't decide that, right? We don't decide that. You know, and Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, when he's deciding how to distribute wealth, he's not bound by anything. Since he's the creator of wealth and he's the distributor of wealth, he's not bound by the economy. He's not bound by interest rates. He's not bound by a bearable market or inflation or any of these things. Allah Ta'ala is in charge. He will allow rizq to come from wherever it needs to come and he will distribute it however he chooses to distribute it. And everything else in between, everything that comes under the umbrella of economy is just an excuse. Wealth is fixed. 
The Prophet said, a soul will never die until it receives all of its livelihood. So the first thing we just covered is that number one, wealth is from Allah. That's a de-stressor. Number two, wealth is fixed. Right? The Prophet said, that verily the, the soul, the human, or the person will never die until it has received its livelihood. Meaning we will not leave this world until we receive every single penny. Livelihood seeks out seeks a person out in the same way that his death does. That's the statement of the Prophet Sallallahu That livelihood or, or our sustenance is seeks out us in the same way that death does. We know that no one escapes death, right? We're, no one can escape that, right? No matter how hard anyone's tried since the beginning of time, if there's one truth to life and existence, it's that it comes to an end. Right? So as certain as that is, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam saying is that in the way that death seeks you out and it can't just, you know, you can't, you can't go away from it. Wherever you are, it will find you. In the same way, you could try to escape your wealth, but it will find you before you die in the way death does. You cannot even escape the sustenance that you're supposed to get. So wealth is fixed. You know, if I was to say that you are going to get $100,000 over the course of your lifetime, no matter what you do, Right? No matter what you do, you are going to get this amount of money. You'd feel at ease. Like, okay, at least I know I'm getting this amount. I can't get a penny more. I can't get a penny less. No problem. I'll continue to do all the things I need to do. But what does it matter about knowing the actual value? Like, why does the actual value matter? A lot, the Prophet said, I'm saying that death, uh, that, that your wealth is going to reach you no matter what you do. You can't alter it by even a single penny. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has written this. So, these two uh, cognitive principles about wealth, they de-stress the human being. They, they de-stress the believer. That, number one, wealth is from Allah. He chooses whom it comes to, and he's the one who creates it. We, we have no control. Number two, every penny that we're going to get, we're going to get no matter what. Even if we try to run away from wealth, not go to word, even if we try to run away from our wealth, it will find us. And this, this provides a framework that's, that's liberating. Right? This is, provides a framework that's de-stressing. We must work to earn wealth. Earning an income is a responsibility assigned to us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet said, seeking lawful earnings is an obligation following other obligations. Look, this clarifies the prior statement. You could say that, okay, well, wealth is something that's going to get me, reach me no matter what I do. If I have a fixed amount, why do I need to pursue it? I might as well just sit on the couch and I'll get exactly what I need to get. But that's contrary to the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the statement of the Prophet ﷺ, which is reminding us that halal, the seeking of halal earnings, or let's just say earnings for now, but specifically halal earnings, it's an obligation amongst other obligations. This is not something that you can ignore. You can't, you know, you can't uh, say that, you know what, whatever I'm going to get, I'm going to get, I'm not going to go earn it. I'm not going to go earn it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is expecting that we actually seek lawful earnings. With a correct intention, time and effort spent seeking wealth is rewarded. Hence, we should aim to excel in this endeavor as we would with other acts of worship. Look, the Prophet said in another hadith, right? Inna Allah ihsana ala kulli shay, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordained or prescribed excellence for us in everything that we do, right? Whether that be our act of ibadah or whether that be any other obligation, right? And so there is no exception to that rule, right? We should excel in everything that we do. Now, when something is an obligation given to us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's all the more reason for us to try to succeed in it. So our, 
our pursuit of wealth or the success or our effort that goes into to pursuing wealth is not dependent on how much money am I going to get in return, or it should not be. Because if it, is, if it is, that's going to stress you. If it's that, you know what, this is an obligation placed on me by Allah as instructed by the Prophet I want to please my Allah. I'm going to perform this to the best of my ability, right? So that then uh, changes your whole perspective about work. Right, what the, you know, when they when they survey people, like what at what points in time during the course of the day are they the least uh, happy? Right, they have like these different things, like you know, and across the board, the time where people feel they are the least happy is when they're at work or when they're on the way to work, like the commute. Right, it's like consistently the lowest. And part of that is because there's so much, there's so much expectation. Like, I want to succeed. I want to do this. I want to earn. I'm not getting, no one's appreciating me. But when we know, but when we see that, number one, all the time that I spend into seeking wealth, meaning all the time I spend working, if it's done with the intention that I want to fulfill the obligation of Allah, that that time's all rewarded. You know, even if they don't give me a penny, I don't, I don't recommend you seek a job where they don't pay you. But even if they didn't, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still watching. And he's seeing that you are trying to seek a lawful earning. So all the time you spend is now going to be rewarded. And that includes the time that you spend preparing in the morning to go to work, eating, changing, getting in the car, filling up gas, driving, driving back, you know, uh, uh, changing your clothes again. That's all rewarded time if it's done with the right intention, right? And that's the secret to the deen. You alter your intention ever so slightly. And now even those things that are... Uh, otherwise considered to be mundane by society now become quite relevant, right? I mean, who would have thought? So that's number one. And the second, so number one is that it, uh, it reduces the frustration at work. Uh, it reduces the frustration associated with work and then the frustrations that come with work. Like if, you know, we think that if, if I'm, why would I excel in my workplace if no one's going to notice? Like, why am I going to go out of my way to take on X, Y, and Z responsibilities unless my boss knows about it or unless my colleagues say thank you afterward, unless I'm seen as that person? But if this is an act of worship and I have to excel in it, this is all the more reason for me to try to excel in work. It doesn't matter if anyone in my workplace notices it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is noticing it. He's taking account. He's rewarding me. And that's all I need. Wealth is a means toward other goals. The purpose of wealth is, one, to provide sustenance and modest comfort to ourselves and our families so we can live as good Muslims in this life. Okay, so wealth is a means toward other goals, right? Uh, wealth is not an end in and of itself it's a means and the way society's create uh, the way society has um has highlighted wealth or shown what wealth is is we've made it look like it's an end right so for instance like you know what's a hard end like your salary if i'm applying for a job i want to know exactly how much money i'm going to make and at this end point let's say fifty thousand dollars is a salary now me working to earn a living that fifty thousand dollars is almost like this hard end and once i've once I get a job that can earn me that much money, I don't have to think any further about it, right? My employer decides that end for me. But really, I mean, what they should do is say, okay, we'll give you $50,000, but we also want to know how you're going to spend that $50,000. That should be part of your job as well, right? Because that would mean that it's a little bit more fluid because it, it's not an end. When we acquire wealth, it's not that we acquire it and we keep it and now it's ours or that we... Uh, or that any judgment is done. It's not that we just seek lawful earnings, and then once we've acquired that wealth, it's now I put in the effort, I get to do whatever I want with it. Rather, it's a means to an end. And the first uh, the purpose of wealth is that we provide sustenance and modest comfort to ourselves and to our families so that we can live at, as good Muslims in this life. So, you know, uh, it's important that we earn a living or try to earn a living so that we can provide some comforts for our families, right? You know, the Prophet said, 
I know some people argue that um, there's no such thing as getting any happiness from wealth, right? Like money doesn't buy happiness. That's like a common phrase. You know, you, I can assure you if there's a homeless person on the street and he doesn't have a penny to his name and you walk up to him and give him $20 and say, enjoy lunch, he's going to be happy, right? So there is a threshold in which money can provide a little bit of contentment and satisfaction. And that's the contentment outlined by this principle here, right? And which is outlined by the Sunnah of the Prophet said him, that if you, or if you get money and you spend it on enough to provide for your family so that they're comfortable and they're able to practice deen, that will bring you happiness. If you don't provide that, that will lead to kufr. The Prophet said in a hadith, that faqr, uh, right, like poverty, it leads to kufr because then you begin to um, lose your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So uh, uh, one of the purposes of wealth is to provide for our families so that they and us, so that we all together can maintain our deen. And then the second purpose? And two, to spend our excess on others to allow them to fulfill their needs, which in turn benefits us in the hereafter. Okay, look, and, and you can go ahead and finish. Wealth is not an end. Rather, it is a means to an end. Look, so again, the acquisition of wealth is not the goal, right? The goal is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so number one, I acquire wealth as a means to provide for my family so they can please Allah and myself so that, I, you know, we can please Allah. And then I use that wealth whenever I have access of it to spend on other people, right? Because then that also pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's no, there's no end that wealth in and of itself is, is, is of value. In fact, um, actually, let's move on to the... Um, yeah, let's move on to the next point. As such, hoarding of wealth only increases greed and desire. Okay, so now the acquisition of wealth is a means, right? So if we choose not to spend it on our families for the purpose of encouraging, like for, for the purpose of modest comfort, right? Just for the basic needs of our family and for encouraging them towards deen. And we don't we choose not to spend it on others, then that leaves the third option, which is that we just keep money to ourselves, right? And that's greed. And, and that leads to greed, right? Hoarding onto wealth leads to greed. And, you know, we started off by saying that money is very tricky. And accumulating a lot of money and holding on to it is also very tricky. It challenges us a lot. You know, they've done, there's a, there's a researcher out in, um, at Berkeley who does a lot of studies on wealthy people, right, and, and money that they have. So they did this one study, uh, his name is Paul Piff. They did this one study where they looked at the effect that wealth may have on social law. So they had placed one of their, you know, research assistants, uh, like on a sidewalk. And in California, in order to, when you cross the sidewalk, the pedestrian has the right of way. So they checked to see as cars were approaching and the pedestrian was about to cross, they checked to see if the car was going to stop or if it was going to continue. And they wrote down the make and the model of the car, didn't decide if, 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 if it actually stopped or not. And what's interesting is that the value of a car is, it, it's a pretty good predictor of, the, of, your, of, your, um, of your value, right? Like how much money you have. And so they found consistently over hundreds of cars that the more expensive cars tended to break the law and just bypass that pedestrian. And the cars that, and it was like a perfect linear relationship. And the cars that were the least, right, the people that had the least amount of money, were the cars that tended to stop. Now, it doesn't, it isn't to say that people that have wealth are are evil. It just means that when you, with wealth, come comes the possibility of greed and the possibility of hoarding, and we should be very careful about it, right? The other, the other possibility that comes besides greed is the possibility of narcissism and 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 urjub and, and admiration and thinking that you're something and vanity. They did a study, uh, same group did a study where they. They basically took the children, college students of, of wealthy people, 
and, and normal and average income people. And they put them into this room and they prepared them and, they, and there was like a mirror in the room and they said to the, the students, the college students, that look, um, okay, the next thing that we're gonna do is we're gonna take a picture. So there's a mirror if you wanna look inside the mirror. And they timed how long those students spent in front of the mirror. And the, and the students that came from wealthy backgrounds spent more time in front of the mirror preparing for the picture that is of really no other value than the people that had less lower income. Again, just it, it, it has the possibility of creating this notion, if we hold on to it, right, of, of that we are better than society. And so we should be very careful about that, and the dean highlights that to us. Additionally, if we are consumed by the pursuit of wealth, we will seek it to no end, leading to perpetual discontentment. The Prophet said, if the son of Adam had two deserts full of wealth, he would seek a third. SubhanAllah, right? This is the nature of a human being. We, we always want more when it comes to our finances. We're never satisfied. We're never satisfied. You know, and, and the reason we seek it is this notion that somehow money brings happiness. And going back to what, how I started off by saying, well, can money buy happiness, right? Yes, if someone has very little money, it can make them a bit happier because then they're more, in, they, as long as you can meet your needs, you don't feel that extreme stress and that can make a person feel happy. But there's like this inflection point, right? And, and, and there's a researcher out in Boston, Dan Gilbert, who's done this. And he shows that, you know, at what point do you, are you no longer able to become happier through acquiring wealth? We're going to talk about spending in just a minute. But at what point could you no longer become happier by acquiring wealth? And the magic number that they've come up with for Americans at least is like $75,000. Uh, now, what that means is that whether you make your household income is 75K or $5 billion, you will not become any happier by acquiring more wealth. So there's a certain, there's a limit to how much, uh, to how much wealth can provide satisfaction for us. But once we reach that point, I, I'm not telling you to calculate, am I at 75 above or below? Those numbers are, there still needs to be more science behind this. But, but we, and we know this from the, from the Prophetism statement as well. Like, you will perpetually be um, uh, in, in a state of discontent. Because you're always going to want more and more and more. You know, like they say, or, or, or we've heard, you know, our Adama say that the desire of a person who has a million dollars is a million and one dollars. The Prophet is saying the desire of a person who has two deserts full of wealth, right? This is, this is the hadith in Imam Bukhari's collection. That their desire is to have a third desert full of wealth. We achieve those goals when our earnings are halal. Okay, so the next is, uh, we talked about the seeking wealth, right? Uh, and now we're going to talk about having halal earnings. The Prophet ﷺ said, He who acquires it, wealth, lawfully, and puts it to use lawfully, finds blessing in, blessings in it. So this is like a hard stop, right? If, if we want, uh, in acquiring wealth, the prior hadith, and this hadith reminds us that wealth should be acquired lawfully. If it is not acquired lawfully, then there's no blessing in it. You know, and, and uh, let's go on to the next hadith. The opposite is also true in that if wealth is acquired unlawfully, it will not be conducive to our goals. And he who acquires it unlawfully is like one who goes on eating but is never satiated. And it will stand witness against him on the day of judgment. Okay, so the first point is that if wealth is acquired unlawfully, it will not be conducive to our goals. What were the goals of wealth? We talked about it in the beginning. The goal of wealth is to spend on our families so that we can provide them with moderate comfort so they can, they can uh, exemplify deen, right? Exemplify their, their, uh, 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 their full potential. And then whatever excess we have, we spend it on others. But if our earnings are coming from haram sources, from unlawful sources, there's no barakah in that. 
There's no barakah in that. And the effect of unlawful sources, it's not something that we can tangibly see. Although sometimes you can, right? Like you wonder, I have all this money, but I feel like I have nothing. That's a, that's a, uh, th- that's a sensation that comes from having haram wealth. But then you see the effect in the children as well, right? You see the effect in the families as well, that the children aren't on deen potentially, that the relationships are corrupt. There's no, when there's no barakah in wealth, right? This is like a hard stop. The first step when we're choosing, you know, how we're going to acquire wealth, is it permissible or is it not? And if it's not permissible, then we don't even have to have any further discussion about how to spend it. And if the money that's coming in is haram, it's, really, it, it, it's, t- it's tough to move forward. We should spend on ourselves with moderation. Oh, sorry, go back to the last hadith. The Prophet said, it, uh, that one who acquires it unlawfully is like the one who goes on eating but is never satiated, right? It's like this vicious cycle, right? Someone who, let's say someone who starts eating a lot and they just don't get full. They keep eating, right? And then what happens? Because of the food they consume, they gain more weight. Now they gain more weight, which means they have more of a body mass, which means that body mass has cells that need more calories. So then they eat even more the second time. And then they gain more weight, right? And then and they're still not satiated. So now it's like this vicious cycle. So the same with a person who's acquiring wealth. If it's acquired from an unlawful source, right? If we have... Um, an unlawful source of wealth coming in, we will never be satisfied. We'll want more, and to feed the unlawful wealth, we'll seek even more unlawful wealth. Right? It's just this vicious cycle that we should try to remove ourselves from. We should spend on ourselves with moderation. Mindfully spending is a principle taught to us by the Prophet Moderation in spending is half of one's sustenance. This is the hadith of the Prophet That moderation or spending moderately is taught by the Prophet we should be comfortable with our circumstances and spend according to our means on needs. The constant allure of retailers, advertisements, and technological advancements in spending methods can take advantage of our limited self-control. We should be mindful of this so that we are not inadvertently stressing our finances. Okay. Part of the reason that we become stressed with our finances is because of, or not part of, one of the main reasons is because of how we spend our finances. Part of it is our own fault, right? We're driven, we're human beings, we want more, we think that the dunya has something to offer us, although we know, we know that it really doesn't, right? And, and, we, and even science has really shown that, that if things don't really produce happiness, right? It's, you can't get that from things. But the rest of the world is still after our money. Right? Everyone wants our money. And everything is an advertisement trying to get us a set. And it's always been this way. It's not, this is not something new. It's been since the beginning of time, this, this desire. To, but, but now it's become global. So before, the person that wanted my money was a person that was interacting with me face to face. Now the person who wants my money is across the world in Japan. And I can send them my money in just a matter of a, you know, two seconds or less. So uh, number one is that there's this, there's this global, right? Now there's, now there's global advertisers that want our money. The second thing to understand is that um, retailers, they know that, it's, they know that it's hard for us to part with our money. They know it's hard for us to part with our money. So they've created ways so that that parting is a bit easier. Okay, let me give you some examples. Let's say that, you know, you decide to go for dinner tonight. There's no dinner here, I think, right? So you might have to do that, actually. But let's say you had to go for dinner. You and your wife decide that you're going to go for dinner. And you go to a restaurant, and you have a nice meal. And at the end, the waiter you know, comes up and says, okay, here's your, you look at the bill. The bill is $100, right? When you see that bill, although the meal was probably excellent, it, there's a, it, it hurts a little bit, right? You feel a little bit. And now when it's time to pay, you, know, you have the option. The waiter says, okay, we take cash only, and you have to take out cash. There's a little bit of friction in parting with that money. Now you have the option of paying by credit card. 
Now, when you have the option of paying by cash, where you feel a little bit of a hesitation and a friction, you have the option of paying by plastic, which is credit card, which doesn't look or feel like money. It's a lot easier. Now, let's say the waiter comes up and says, you know, don't, uh, don't worry about paying us today. We're going to send you a bill. It'll come in three months. Now, the meal tasted a lot better, <laughs> right? And so this is, what, um, this is what they've really figured out. It's, that, it's this friction that, uh, that they try to reduce, right? Create ways that we can part with our money more easily. And what are the ways by which friction is reduced so that it encourages us to part with our money more easily? Number one is the time between the transaction or whatever you're purchasing and the time where the money's actually due. Right? And the second thing is the attention that you're paying to payment. So what do I mean by time? Meaning if, I have to, if I'm buying something right now, right, and if I have to pay for it a month later, it's easier for me to go ahead and commit to giving up that money versus if I have to pay it right now. So there's, le- there's, uh, there's more friction when I have to pay it right now. Then the uh, attention to payment, if I'm paying with gold, that, I can feel it. <laughs> you know? If I'm paying with cash, although it's, you know, I mean, at least today that's the, the form of currency, we feel a little bit of friction. We'll think twice before having to give it up. But if I'm paying with a credit card, I don't really notice that this is my money. It's just a card that I swipe or I insert, and it doesn't really, I, don't feel, I don't feel anything different. And then they're like, okay, well, that's not enough. We need to, we need to uh, reduce the friction even more. So now we're going to create apps where you just have to scan your phone when you go get a $5 coffee at Starbucks. You don't feel any friction when you're making that transaction. You're more likely to just give up your money. You, don't, you won't even think about it. You know, uh, Apple Pay and Android Pay and all these things are designed, they're, they're sold and advertised as things that will make things more convenient for you. But in reality, they're things that will get more money out of you. This is the same with store-branded credit cards. Like, what's the advantage of having a store-branded credit card? Let's say, I don't know, I don't know, JCPenney or something. I don't know, is that around anymore? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Let's just say you have, JCPenney has a credit card. Right? I mean, the purpose of them selling you a credit card is to basically, they're advertising it as, well, every three months we're going to give you this 20% off coupon. And the first time you use our credit card and you open an account, you'll get 50% off your entire purchase. That I thought is that, well, I'm going to save a lot of money. But if you look at a person one year later, guaranteed the person who's actually purchased the credit card has spent more money and wasted that money rather than the person who just used cash and paid up front. Right? Because there's less of a, of a friction between, between the payments. So store-branded credit cards have figured it out. And they're like, we just need to get this person the credit card. We will give whatever promotion, a $100 gift you know, with, that comes with the card. So we should be very careful about this right? when we're spending. And there's, the one factor is that it, we end up spending more than, more than we need. The second factor is that we spend more than we can spend because we aren't, we, aren't, we, aren't, we aren't budgeting, we aren't calculating this. And the third is a baraka factor as well. Like What you're doing when you're paying with credit card is you're introducing a third party. You're saying, look, the two of us are going to transact, but you know what, why don't we bring someone else and how about you pay him and then I'll pay him. Let's just make this a lot more complicated than it needed to be. Right? It's, it, when you think about it that way, it doesn't really make sense. right? Why am I doing it? Because I'll get you know, 1% cash back at the end of the month. Is it worth it? You know, there's, when you earn wealth with your own hands, there's baraka in that, right? When you go and earn a living, your obligation, that's wealth that's coming to you. When you're transacting with that wealth directly, and today it's in the form of cash, there's baraka. But when you now add this third party in, and, you know, there's all this possibility that that money that they're paying with is, you know, it's, just, it's, not, that it's, it's not a question of permissibility. It's a question of, of baraka. Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu narrates that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, when one of you looks at someone who is better off in property or wealth and, and looks, he should then also look at one who is lower than him in these matters. SubhanAllah. 
right? What is our tendency? We look at everyone that has, uh, everyone that's, you know, at least from a dunyawi perspective, from a financial perspective, from having materialistic things, we always look at people that are above us. And it's not, I mean, part, part of it's our fault. Part of it is just the way technology is today, right? When you're sifting through, your, you know, your Instagram feed, for instance, and you're looking at all the fancy places people have gone and all the fancy restaurants they got to eat at and all the nice clothes that they just purchased, what you're basically saying is I'm, you're not just looking at what they have. You're actually doing a comparison of, oh, this is what I don't have this. I don't have this. Oh, I don't have that. I didn't get to go there. I didn't get to eat here. And it's this constant uh, barrage of of, of, of things that we don't have that eventually it weighs down on us. But look at the advice of the Prophet right? It's so, I mean, it's, it's, when, when one of you looks at someone who is better off in a property, like, not like, you know, when one of you is purposely swifting through, let me, oh, let me, now I'm done with Instagram, let me go look at Islamic Relief's website and see what people don't have, right? That's not, it's that when you, when you come across the dunya of someone, right, you see you're driving by and something catches your eye, well, make sure at that point or soon after that you go and you look at people that have less than you because then you will, importantly, um, uh, appreciate what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you, right? And so uh, society doesn't want that. So we should be very, we should be very mindful of this. And, and we'd be careful, going back to the last talk, what we allow to come in through our eyes and through our ears and our sights and things like that. I mean, we think that these things don't have an effect. I know Sheikh Hussein's talked about this in the past. Uh, we think that these things don't have an effect. They affect us in so many ways. Not like I'm talking about looking at the dunya of other people, especially on screens. They affect us cognitively, emotionally, psychologically. There's so many, I think we'll cover in the next talk. There's so many uh, negative aspects to this. But then you look at the statement of the Prophet, and he just immediately just says, Why are you wasting your time? But what are you doing? Just looking at, just scrolling through what everyone else has so that I can feel bad about myself. Along these lines, we should avoid careless spending. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, Wala tabdhira. And do not spend wastefully. Indeed, the wasteful are brothers of the devils. You can go ahead. He, subhanahu wa ta'ala, also states, And do not be extravagant. Verily, Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, does not like the extravagant. Okay, so we started off this session. The section was, we should spend on ourselves with moderation. One, we saw what the Prophet said, advised us about when we're looking at other people's. But how about spending itself, right? There's two words that are used here, or two main concepts that are used here. One is tabdeer, and one is israf, right? These are two. The first verse was talking about tabdeer, and the second is talking about israf. In both cases, what is being intended is wasteful spending. And neither of these are permitted. Right? Spending wastefully, unnecessarily is not permitted. Now, the difference between the two is a bit of an academic discussion, but tabdeer really refers to spending when there was no need to spend. You know, you have, for instance, a, a, a car that works fine, it serves a purpose, and just for the heck of it, you go to the dealership and purchase another car for no reason whatsoever. That's tabdeer. And that's so disliked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he says that the, the people that, that spend ex like unnecessarily, let's say, it, this is like ikhwana uh, shayateen, right? These are like the, the brothers or the, the brothers of the devils. Uh, so we should be very careful. And then there's israf, which is where you take things too far. You know, that's what israf really means. And in the case of finances, is when you spend excessively. Now, neither of these are permitted. So we should be very careful about this. Number one is that we spend. Um, we spend when there's a need to spend on something, so that we prevent, uh, avoid tabzid. We spend 
we, within our means, you know, what, another defini uh, defi definition of tabdhir that's given by the mufassirin is when you spend money extravagantly to the point where you become impoverished. Like let's say you have $500 in your account and you use a credit card to purchase and take a loan on a $2,000 thing that you, you may probably could have done without. That, although it's, it's, it's something that you probably need, but when you spent uh, and you put yourself in debt unnecessarily for something that really didn't have, uh, let's say, a need in your life, that's also considered tabdeer. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala advises us against expending extravagantly and spending unnecessarily. Additionally, the Prophet ﷺ has warned us against wasting our wealth. And he, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, has disliked for you, he says, she says, excessive questioning and wasting of wealth. There's another hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. He says, uh, So we see these two verses of the Quran that talk about wasting wealth. Now the Prophet is also saying the wasting of wealth is disliked for us. By whom? By Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we should be very careful about this. Now what's interesting is that when the scholars talk about israf, meaning spending extravagantly, they say that there's no such thing as spending extravagantly when you're spending on others, meaning when you're giving in sadaqah. Like that, that concept doesn't exist. Israf applies to when you're spending on yourself. The following verse beautifully summarizes the spending qualities of the true servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَالَّذِينَ إِذَا أَنفَقُوا لَمْ يُسْرِفُوا وَلَمْ يَقْتُرُوا وَكَانَ بَيْنَ ذَلِكَ قَوَامًا And they are those who, when they spend, are neither extravagant nor miserly, but it, their spending, is justly moderate between the two extremes. Okay, this is a very powerful ayah. Right? The Prophet, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us exactly what we should do with our wealth. There's two extremes. You either hold on to it, right? You hoard your wealth and you just keep acquiring, acquiring, acquiring. And the other extreme is that you spend unnecessarily and extravagantly, right? And, and neither are liked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expects of us is that we are in between. And, and, and qawama takes on this meaning of like we're consistently in between. It's not like, you know, on Saturdays and Sundays I spend extravagantly, but I'm going to be, you know, in between Monday to Friday. It's consistently that we spend in moderation, right? It's consistently we spend in moderation, that we don't hoard wealth. We don't, uh, we're, uh, we're not miserly. If there's a need that we have or that our family has, then we spend it, right? If Certainly, if there's a need that the community has, then we, then we spend on the community. Um, and, uh, and so we don't hoard wealth, but we don't spend unnecessarily and extravagantly. Every financial transaction is being monitored by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we'll have to answer to Allah ta'ala on the Day of Judgment. Saving money. Historically, the financial needs of people were less, and saving resources beyond what was needed for a rainy day was not common practice. Many hadith of the Prophet highlight how little he saved. However, other hadith point, point towards saving. For instance, it has been narrated that the Messenger of Allah would set aside a year's worth of provision for his family. Okay, so this next section is on saving money, right? Because, um, it, it, you know, we, we've so far just spent our time talking about spending. What about saving? And so there are many hadith of the Prophet that say that he didn't have possessions beyond, for instance, three days within his home, right? But then there's other hadith, like such as this one, that mentioned the Prophet had provisions for a year. And so the scholars of hadith mentioned that, you know, it, uh, there's different narrations. And at different points in the time of the Prophet you see different things. But there is evidence that the Prophet did save. Furthermore, Sufyan al-Thawri, rahmatullahi alayhi, the great Dabari states, in the past, property was considered to be distasteful. Today, however, it is said to be a believer's shield. Look, Sufyan al-Thawri, who was a great, great tabiri, right? Uh, a, a follower of the, of the Sahaba, someone who had, who had uh, interacted with the Sahaba, 
uh, he, this isn't too far after the time of the Prophet, right? We're talking about within 100-200 years. But even if that at the time of the Prophet, we don't see too many examples of, of, of savings, right? Although there are examples in some of the Sahaba. Certainly afterwards, Sufyan Athodi saw that the circumstance in the time was different. And now, you were, there, the time was such that saving had become necessary. Because if you didn't save at the time of Sufyan Athodi, then you were taken advantage of. You were taken advantage of by, the, by, by people who believed, people who didn't believe, but you were taken advantage of. It served as a shield and it protected you. So as a result, uh, in the past, maybe saving wealth was, was looked down upon, maybe. But certainly, based off of the circumstances at the time of Sufyan Athodi, who was a tabari, he felt that it was a benefit to saving. In fact, he, he says... Uh, in his book, Tuhfat al-Ulama, he comments on Sufyan Athodi's practice, and he says, he gives another explanation for this. He says um, that what, if you don't end up saving wealth, uh, this is, he, he's, he's interpreting uh, or saying what Sufyan Athodi has said, then the first, if you don't have wealth, right, you lose your money, or, or, or you don't have enough provision for, let's say, a week or two ahead, then uh, the first thing you'll attack is your deen when you lose your money. Right? What will happen if you don't have money and there's no food on the table? You're gonna go. You're gonna get food some some way or another. You're either gonna earn money in a haram way. You're gonna steal. However it may be. So to avoid the possibility of you attacking your deen, save. We see this in the life of contemporary luminaries as well. Mufti Muhammad Shafi, rahmatullahi alayhi, would set aside 20% of his employment earnings and 10% of his non-employment earnings. So we know Mufti Muhammad Shafi, rahmatullahi right? He was the great scholar who wrote, you know, the tafsir that many of us read, Ma'arif al-Qur'an. And his son, Mufti Taqi, rahimahullah, who's like the master of Islamic finance and economics. And we see Mufti Taqi, I think, is the one who mentions this, uh, that... He, that his that Mufti Shafi, he would save uh, whatever money would come in. If it was money from his earnings, like he earned, he would immediately take it, 20% of his wealth, and he would put it into an envelope. If it was money that he got in some other way, I don't know, maybe it was a gift or maybe some other way, he would take 10% of that and he would put it in an envelope. And he was so particular about this that if he got money, let's say he got like $15, and you can't break 20% of 15 well, rupees, let's say 15 rupees. You can't break 15, you can't break 20% of 15 rupees. I don't think you can. You have to add like cents and anas and things like that, right? He would go to the bank or he would have someone exchange the money so that it could be broken down into 20% and he would save that money. Like that's how particular about, about saving. Now, in his case, his purpose of saving was slightly different, but uh, let's continue. This was his habitual practice, which he would not waver from. In addition, Mawlana Ashraf Ali Tanwi, rahmatullahi alayhi, would advise setting aside one year of savings with the notion that it would free up the mind from having to worry about finances and allow the heart to focus on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's remembrance. This was the wisdom of our ulama and our akabideen. Like, they would think ahead, like, based off of the circuit, and what's the need of the time, right? Like, you know, if... if if you were constantly thinking about how am I going to pay for tomorrow's bills or how am I going to pay, if I lose my job today, how am I going to, you know, pay tuition next month for the kids, then your entire focus is on that. When, in re when really our focus should be on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at all times. We should be remembering Allah ta'ala. So if it means that we have to have a rainy day fund or savings put aside, he's saying, so be it. Just turn your attention back to Allah because a life where we're disconnected from the remembrance of Allah, woman whoever you know uh, abandons my remembrance, then then uh, their life is like constricted. It's constricted. So you're constricting yourself by not remembering Allah. So what about the finances? Just have savings and, and put your attention toward Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Savings should be leveraged. 
as well as the methods society has put in place for savings with the intention of protecting us from becoming financially dependent on others. Okay, so there's two points here. The first is that savings should be leveraged as well as the method society has been has put in place for savings, right? So there's many different ways that, are, that we are encouraged to save. That could be through retirement funds like a 401k or a 403b or an IRA or, or other funds where we just have a separate account where we put money into and we don't touch it or we invest it in, in some halal investments. So we should leverage whatever opportunity we have. If our employer is matching, we should make sure that we take advantage of that, you know? Um, some very interesting studies that uh, there's a person by the name of Dan Ariely. He's a he's a behavioral economist who does a lot of work. Um, he's um, he's a professor at Duke University, and he does a lot of work on like savings and money and the tr and how tricky money is. And he, he talks about why saving is so difficult, right? And if you think about it, there's a couple of reasons. One reason is because saving is so difficult for us today because um, in the past it was a lot easier to save because you could see what other people were saving. So for instance. If I live in a community, I have myself, I have my neighbor. If I want to know how much my neighbor is saving, I would just look at his field, and if I saw 20 goats, those were his savings. If I saw, you know, fields of crop, that was that person's savings, right? And, and vice versa. So when, when I would see what my other person, what my neighbor was doing, I would want to also do the same. So fast forward now to 2020. We don't see what our neighbors are saving or our friends or our colleagues are saving. All we see is what we're spending, Right? So when we see our neighbor getting a nice car, we want to get a nice car. There's a really funny study that looked at lottery winners. And once a person in a, in a neighborhood wins a lottery, the neighbors around them all start spending more. <laughs> like that, that's the effect. You see what they're spending and you'll do the same. And so society has tricked us into thinking that somehow spending unnecessarily is more valuable than saving. Uh, and that's a discussion it needs to have. The second reason that it's difficult to, to spend is because when, or save, is because when you're saving money, that's money that's not available to you right now. And it's difficult for you to say that to your family. So let's say that you make $100 a week, and now you decide that I want to put aside $10 in finances. Now, what is that? Tangibly, that's $10 less that you're bringing home a week. So now instead of bringing home $100 for your family to see and, 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 and interact with right, and use and spend, now it's $90 or $80. And that pinches them a bit. But that pinches you know, our families a bit. So there's a couple studies that were done on this. One is that uh, when pe people were starting a new job, they were given uh, the option of uh, opening a 401k with match or not. And so they looked at two groups. One group of people, one group of, uh, of, of, uh, of a empl potential employee um, went home, made the decision on their own, and came back. And the other group went home, discussed it with their spouse, and came back. And the group that went home and discussed it with their spouse and came back was more likely to enroll in the 401k. Why? Because now their families saw that, they were that the effort they were putting into saving was actually for the family. It wasn't that they were just bringing less, home, less money home altogether. There's another interesting study that this group actually did. Uh, and, and what they did was they tried to have money. Uh, they, they went to Kenya. And in Kenya, they designed a system to encourage people there to save. And over there, people are literally day-to-day -day living. And they're like, how are you going to get someone who's earning money today to pay for tonight's meal to save money? That's, it's very tough to do. So they created different systems. Okay, you know, we're going to create a system where if you save 10, if you save, a, you know, whatever, one, $1, we'll match 20%, we'll match 10%, you know, different ways to encourage people to, to save money. And, uh, and one way was that they, they had the, uh, uh, the person take a big coin and place it inside like their house. And every day that they put money aside in savings, they would make a big like scratch on that coin. And any day they didn't save, they would scratch it in the other direction. And they saw that the, the, of all the groups that they had randomized, the group that actually went home and put a scratch on the wall, which means that they were telling their families that, look, I'm putting aside money, that group was the one that ultimately ended up saving more. For, 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 you know, putting, putting more in savings. So um, 
it's 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 not again the, the the point here is that it's not against taqwa to put money aside in savings. The Prophet ﷺ has said, the upper giving hand is better than the lower receiving hand. Look, the statement of the Prophet ﷺ, it's always better to give than to receive, right? When it comes to when it comes to finances. And um we should do whatever we can to protect ourselves from ever having to become financially dependent on others. Now, we don't always control that, but the means that have been provided for us, such as savings accounts and things of that sort, we should, this is uh, under the umbrella of, of, of this hadith, which is that protect yourself from being in a situation where you become dependent on others. And the way that this society has designed that is through uh, savings. It and then insurance, which has its own other, other issues. So, Use the way that's, you know, clearly. It also serves as a protection from interest-bearing transactions for further development of the community and for the benefit of our offspring. Look, we live in a society that's relatively expensive, meaning there are some finite costs. When you go to college, you have to come up with $80,000. If you're going to go to graduate school, you need another $100,000. If you want to purchase a home, you need an X amount of money. So the ways that you're going to do these either is by taking loans or using savings, right? someone's savings. So when we're thinking about ourselves and our children and our offspring and the greater community at large, right, these finite costs, we, just, we can't avoid them. We can't pretend that you could, let me just go ahead and earn money today and I'm not going to save anything. When my kid gets to college, we'll just figure it out then. Maybe money will fall from the sky. Right? That's not the attitude of the believer. Right? We plan ahead for these sorts of things. Furthermore, you know, uh, development of the community, right? how uh, like to build a center like this, there's, there's, there's money required, right? So uh, further development in the future of a community. These require investments, and for the benefit of our offspring as well. Uh, again, this isn't against taqwa. Spending on others. Spending our wealth on other, others brings an increase in our wealth through the barakah that comes with it. Giving increases our emotional well-being and will result in a reward in the hereafter, inshallah. Okay, so giving, so we're not going to talk too much about this, but we know that when we spend on other people, it adds barakah to our wealth. We know that. In addition, and, and then there's a reward in the hereafter. We know that, right? And that reward is multiplied amply beyond what we could even imagine, right? In addition to that, giving increases our emotional well-being. You know, now this is the last time I'm going to bring up the does money buy happiness point, right? Does money buy happiness? If you say no, we've already proven one or two time situations in which it can. But the way, if you really want to be happy, if you, sorry, if you really want your money to buy you happiness, the way to do so is by spending on other people. There is a, there is a, there is a landmark study that was done. It was published in Science, which is like a really high journal to get published into. It was like in 2008. It was a group from British Columbia and, um, and uh, uh, one of the professors from Harvard Business School. So they did this study in, in Vancouver where they walked around uh, like uh, uh, Vancouver and it was like mainly young people, college-aged uh, college kids, and they gave them $5 and they gave them $20 and they randomized them. One group had to spend money on themselves, whatever they wanted to. They can purchase things for themselves, they could buy a gift, they can get a cup of coffee, whatever. The other group could only spend on other people. They had to buy someone a gift, buy someone a cup of coffee, donate that money away, whatever it may be. $5, $20, $5, $20, two groups. And they did surveys of happiness before, during, and after. Or, or, or at the end of the thing, they had, con they had... And they found consistently that the people that took that money, th by the way, that's not their money. This is money that was given to them, right? So, I mean, that's like a, oh my gosh, I just got an extra $20. Um, consistently, they found that people that would spend that money on other people were consistently happier. And this has been replicated. So then the argument is that, well, you know, maybe people don't need 5 or $20. This is, this is Canada. They're fairly wealthy. They replicated this study in, U in, in Uganda. 
you know, in a, in a country that's impoverished, same exact results. So, and it's been proven and replicated time and time again that if you want your money to buy you happiness, emotional well-being, personal satisfaction, you will never be able to purchase anything for yourself that will get you that. But if you spend it on other people, you're almost guaranteeing yourself happiness and emotional well-being in this world. Hence, the deen encourages freely giving sadaqah and reminds believers that charity never decreases wealth. The Prophet ﷺ informed us, charity does not decrease wealth. So the Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith, right, that charity does not decrease wealth, rather it puts barakah in it. You will not lose money by giving money to someone else, meaning for some righteous cause, someone that needs money. You know, you, it will never go down. So why wouldn't you? If there's, you? You gain in this world, financially you gain, emotionally you gain. We've already talked about that. And then you also gain in the hereafter. There's really, you can't lose in this sort of a transaction. It would be one thing if it's like, look, you're going to be miserable in this world if you give your money to someone else, but at least you'll have Jannah, right? I mean, that, that would still be a good thing. But Allah Ta'ala doesn't, I mean, uh, uh, he, he wants He wants the servants of his that are striving in his path to not just be good in the hereafter. He wants goodness for them and wellness for them in this world. That's why he's created this system where if you strive and do something that's pleasing and, and beneficial for your hereafter, it will also provide you with happiness and contentment and satisfaction and wellness in this world. And we see this example by giving uh, away sadaqah. The Prophet ﷺ also mentioned that one group of the seven that will be shaded on the Day of Judgment is that individual who gives charity so secretly that his left hand does not know what his right hand has given. This highlighting to us, and this hadith is going to come back in a minute, highlighting to us that we should freely give without thinking. Okay, so let's continue. It'll make sense here. As technological advancements, automatic deduction, online purchasing, have reduced the friction of transactions, it should be leveraged for charitable causes. Okay, let's go back to the discussion we had about the friction that occurs with the transaction. Remember we used the restaurant example. It, 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 or just you, when you're paying cash for something, you, if you feel it a little bit. You feel, it's harder to part with it. When you're, giving, when you're using plastic, it feels even less. When you're using an app, you don't even know, you don't even realize it's your money that you're giving away, right? So rather than use these sorts of um, methods on spending unnecessarily on ourselves, leverage it, right? I mean, play, play, play it in the opposite way. Use it on them. You know, use the system to apply it to the hadith of the Prophet where he said, give with your right hand that which your left hand doesn't know. That's how freely you should give sadaqah. Meaning, if you use, for instance, an automatic deduction, there's very little friction involved in that because you set it up, it comes out of your account every month, you don't check your account every single day, so you don't know that it's even come out. But over the course of time, it, you, you get this cumulative benefit that comes from it. There's very little friction involved in that sort of a transaction. So if you want to use this sort of technology, pay cash for yourself, but when you're giving sadaqah and charity and money to a masjid or to an organization or foundation, utilize this form of technology. It's easy. It simplifies things for you. It will accumulate beyond your imagination, like the reward that can come from it. And um, it, it, uh, it benefits the community as well, in addition to us. Additionally, the Prophet ﷺ encouraged us to give gifts to others, as this joins, the, joins hearts and prevents ill will both of which are essential for wellness. The Prophet ﷺ said, give presents to each other, for a gift removes ill will. Okay, so the funny thing about gifts is that if you think about the transaction of a gift, when you're giving somebody a gift, this is a, um, an econom economically inefficient transaction, but it's socially very efficient. What do I, what do I mean by that? So if, let's say that you want to go to someone's house and you buy a really nice candle for $30, you take it to them, right? You give it to them as a gift, and they're like, I don't really like candles. 
So to them, it's like, how much would they pay for a candle? $10 because they don't really care for candles, right? That would be how much they would be willing to pay. So what you've done is you spent $30 on something they may would, they may would, they probably would spend $10 for, so you've lost $20. So it's an economically inefficient transaction. Does that make sense? It would have been better for you to just give them $30 cash, right? And just say, here, take $30, get whatever you want. But that's what we would think. But uh, it's very interesting that gifts actually promote, uh, like the Prophet said, they uh, remove ill will. And what's interesting, they did this study where they were studying gift giving between people. And when you give a gift to someone, no matter what the monetary value of that gift is, as long as the person doesn't know how much it is, they really appreciate it. But once you say, hey, I got this candle, if, if you, let's say you get this candle for them, and they don't even use candles. In fact, it, maybe it causes the migraines, I don't know. But let's say they don't, you don't use candles, it, it, and, and you gift it to them. Um, even if they don't use it or like it or it bothers them, they still appreciate it and they feel good about it. But once you give them the candle and say, oh, by the way, this costed $30, and you introduce money into the transaction, all of a sudden now you survey people and they weren't satisfied with the actual object. So it promotes social, it's very socially efficient though. And I don't need science to prove that or economics to prove that too. The Prophet Sassadim is saying that this is a socially efficient transaction. Be particular, uh, be regular in this. Avoiding debt. Financial debt carries a psychological weight that is difficult to overcome. Its effects are lasting and hence, when possible, should be avoided. While we find in the Sirah examples of the Prophet ﷺ taking loans, indicating its permissibility, we also find that he made dua from being overtaken by debt and encouraged paying debt back debts as soon as possible. Prophet said in a hadith, it's a dua that we should all recite. It's a very lengthy dua. It actually ties very well into wellness, right? And I didn't put it up here. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-hammi wal-hazan wa a'udhu bika min al-ajizi wal-kasal. It talks about all these points of wellness, like sadness, like, oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from sadness and grief and anxiety. And then he says in there, wa a'udhu bika min ghalabat al-dayn, that I seek refuge in you from being overtaken by debt. Right? This was a concern of the Prophet He didn't want to be overtaken by debt. And by, by uh, uh, that apply, and of course, that, you know, that, that applies to us as well. The Prophet ﷺ said, delay in the repayment of debt by a wealthy person is a form of oppression. SubhanAllah, to delay repayment of a debt by a wealthy person. Wealthy doesn't mean wealthy, now I have four times the amount that I actually owe a person. Wealthy means that I have enough money to pay the person back, but I'm delaying that payment back. The Prophet ﷺ said, this is a form of oppression. So number one, we should delay debt. We should avoid debt at all costs because of the financial and psychological stress that it comes with, especially when it's interest-bearing. And, uh, uh, and if we ever have to put ourselves in debt, we should pay it off as quickly as possible. We shouldn't, like, for instance, if you choose to use a credit card, you don't wait until your statement comes and then risk the possibility of paying it after the month is done. You make the transaction, and that same day you go ahead and make the payment ahead of time. So you're not dealing with the possibility of, one, transacting with interest, two, putting yourself in a situation where you owe money and you don't have it. A reason many take on debt is to live a more comfortable life. However, debt tends to be constricting, especially when interest-bearing, such that the stress that arises from owing a debt erases any temporary happiness that arises from a purchase. This is a very important principle. Any, uh, uh, the stress that arises from owing a debt erases any temporary happiness that arises from a purchase. I think we talked about this this morning. Any purchase that you make from something materialistic in this world, the happiness that comes from that fades within weeks or months after to the point where six months later, the car that you bought brings you no more happiness than the car that you had before, right? Or a year later. There's no difference. 
the reason that we often take on debt, especially consumer debt, but even any other, even other debt, we take it because we want to live more comfortably. We see the lifestyles of the Joneses, and we want to live that lifestyle as well, so we take on debt for that purpose. But you will not become happier no matter what you do if you have to take a debt on for that. In fact, there's a consumer psychologist, Dr. Yarrow, she's in California, and, and she works with all these corporations and, and, and uh, sees spending habits of people. And, and, and the, recommend, the final recommendation is that there is nothing that you can become happier from by taking on a debt than by avoiding that debt altogether. This is, this is, this is ingrained in, uh, in our sunnah. Furthermore, High financial debt has been associated with higher rates of perceived stress, depression, and blood pressure. Hence, debt should be avoided unless absolutely necessary. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we have to have, there's no discussion there, right? Like, why would you want to have high blood pressure? I don't know. Maybe if you have low blood pressure baseline, but apart from, why would you want to be depressed, right? I mean, why would you put yourself in that sort of a situation? Avoid it at all costs if possible. Avoiding interest. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has explicitly pro prohibited interest in the Quran, and hence, we should avoid it. Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu la ta'kulu riba adha'afan mudha'afa O you who believe don't consume usury doubled and multiplied but fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so you may so that you may be successful Yamhaqullahu riba wa yurbis sadaqat Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroys usury and increases charity Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states that he destroys interest. Okay, look, we talked about debt, then there's interest, and interest is strictly prohibited by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, and, and that's something that we have to avoid at all costs. Um, in addition, Allah ta'ala says that he destroys interest, meaning the money that you accumulate from interest or by giving interest, it gets destroyed. But when you give money in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's when your money actually goes up. It's the complete opposite. You see how much Allah ta'ala appreciates when a person spends in sadaqah, and how much he dislikes when a person engages in a riba, right? Consequently, transactions in which there is interest involved are devoid of barakah, leading to negative consequences in this life and the next, including stress, hardship, and persistent daily worry. Unsecured debt has been shown to correlate with depressive symptoms and decreased psychological well-being in adults. Unsecured debt, meaning debt that's not from like a home or a car that they could repossess if you don't pay. Unsecured debt, which means really credit card debt and these sorts of things, have been shown to, uh, have been shown to correlate with decreased psychological well-being, depression, etc. It, it, it only makes sense. If something is so displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like I talked about earlier, if it's not going to be beneficial for your akhirah, it's probably going to cause you to have some sort of struggle and suffering in, in this dunya as well. So we should, we should do our best to avoid it. Interest, however much it might accrue, leads in the end to penury. That's another hadith of the Prophet I'm just uh, supporting that. Being content with wealth. The recognition that it is indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone who provides should allow us the space to focus on serving and worshipping him. The Prophet said, Okay, so uh, we talked about this in the beginning, the cognitive framework. By appreciating that it's Allah ta'ala that provides and it's a fixed amount that he's going to provide no matter what we do, we can't change it. That in and of itself should give us the space to focus on worshipping him. So we don't have to follow the rat race that the rest of the world is, is interested in. Right? We don't have to. Go ahead. The Prophet said, Occupy yourself in worship of me. I shall fill your chest with contentment and unconcern, and I shall remove your poverty. If you do not do so, I shall keep your hand occupied and shall not remove your poverty. Right, subhanAllah. Like, occupy yourself in the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what you're saying. And I shall fill your chest with contentment and unconcern, and I shall remove your poverty. If you make Allah ta'ala your goal, not 
not your paycheck, and not some artificial number in an account. If we make Allah Ta'ala our goal, then He will take care of our poverty. And if we don't make Allah Ta'ala our goal, then He'll keep our hands occupied and will not remove our, our poverty. The above hadith betters our understanding of why even the apparently wealthy are stressed by their finances. Look, this is why people that have billions of dollars are still feeling stressed by their finances. In fact, you know, some of the, uh, the behavioral economists, when they study, like, uh, happiness across, like, different wealth groups, and they, oh, by the way, we talked about how stress is across all financial groups, right? The number one cause of stress in America is finance, and that's whether you make $5,000 a year or you make $5 billion a year, it's still your number one stressor. And when they study across different, uh, different groups of people, um, uh, even the apparently super wealthy are stressed by their finances to the point where they're never satisfied. Like it's like, well, maybe I need more in order to quench this thirst that I have. But uh, and we see from this hadith that uh, it has to do with our relationship with our Creator. Unless a person focuses their attention on Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, He will keep them engaged in the constant pursuit of dunya without an endpoint. Their perception of their own financial state will always be dire. Right? It's never enough. My finances are never enough, right? Unless we fully uh, turn our attention back to Allah and engage ourselves in His worship, um, we're, we're never going to be satisfied. The dunya cannot satisfy us. Let's put it that way. Wealth cannot, like, it's not going to satisfy us unless we spend it on others. But otherwise, acquisition is not going to satisfy us. So this is the final hadith, and then we'll conclude for Maghrib, inshallah. He, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, also said, he who is pleased with Allah over little provisions, Allah is pleased with him with his few deeds. Our hope is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provide us with wealth so that we may spend on others. And if he chooses to withhold wealth from us, that it eases our accounting on the day of judgment. SubhanAllah. Look at this setup. Like what a perfect setup. Like what a perfect setup. He who is pleased with Allah over little provisions. Like if Allah ta'ala chooses to make me from that person who's not going to get as much as the next person, Right? Allah Ta'ala will be pleased with whatever little I have to offer him. So I don't have to worry about, you know, can I, be, can I make the next dollar? Can I become the next, you know, whoever, next billionaire? I don't have to, because if I do, then I have to answer to Allah. But if I have little, it's okay. Alhamdulillah. Maybe Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala will, will accept the little deeds that I have, right, in return. And our hope is that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, He give us wealth so that we can spend on others, so that we uh, achieve wellness in this life and in the hereafter. But if He Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala chooses otherwise for us, no problem. It'll be an easier accounting for us, inshallah, on the Day of Judgment. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us tawfiq to appreciate the, uh, appreciate, um, the finances from the perspective of the Qur'an and Sunnah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, open up our, uh, put barakah in our wealth and allow us to spend it according to what's pleasing to him and his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from any trials and tribulations that we're undergoing in relation to our wealth. And may he de-stress us uh, fr from, uh, fr from this aspect of our life. Wa akhira da'wana alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.